0: Oh, good evening, everyone. Good to see you here again. So why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together for prayer meeting. And we pray now that as we study from Romans 5, you would give us a special blessing as we seek to understand this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we did Romans chapter 4, and tonight we are going to go through Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 is um, sometimes misunderstood as far as some of the things that Paul is saying. So we're, gonna, we're going to go through some of that tonight. And it will hopefully give us a, a better understanding of the whole concept of righteousness by faith. But starting in verse 1... <clears throat> verse 1 of Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, chapter 5, verse 1, starts off with the word therefore, which means that what he has said in previous verses is how he proves what justification by faith is. So where does Paul prove what justification by faith is? It's the end of Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul is saying because of what I showed you in Romans 3 and in Romans 4, that's what it means to be justified by faith. And I hope that you got the idea or the, the concept of how beautiful justification by faith is when we went through the end of Romans 3 and when we went through Romans chapter 4. And if you look at the end of Romans 3 and if you look at Romans chapter 4, you see that justification by faith is linked to the faith of Jesus Christ. It's linked to believing in God as creator to create a new life in us. And I want to point out, again, just one point from last week so that this is clear in Romans chapter 4 verse 3 it says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. To be counted righteous is to be justified. And then in Romans 4 verse 22 it says therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. And as you go through those passages you see that Abraham was he against hope, believed in hope. He was not weak in faith. He considered not his own body dead. He was strong in faith. He was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So Abraham had a faith that was fully persuaded that what God said, he would do. And then it says, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So because Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to perform, he had righteousness imputed to him. And the thing that caused Abraham to be fully persuaded, based on Genesis 15, we studied this last week, is when God took him out and showed him the stars and said, so shall thy seed be, Abraham then believed, because he remembered that when God spoke, The worlds came into existence. When God says, His word has creative power. So if God says that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child, even though they're past childbearing age, because he says, Abraham believes because he knows God's word has creative power. He was fully persuaded, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. And it wasn't and just another point is it wasn't as if Abraham Believed and then nothing ever happened or nothing ever changed. He and Sarah actually had a child when it was humanly impossible for that to take place. So God's word did accomplish what it said it would accomplish. So we we studied that last week and really Romans four and the concept of the faith of Abraham is powerful. It's beautiful. And then, if you look at verses 23, 24, and 25, we see okay, Abraham, he's the father of the faithful. Righteousness was imputed to him because he was fully persuaded. Then, verse 23, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. So now we see the good news of the gospel coming out for us, not just for Abraham. Verse 24, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe. So Abraham believed. What did it mean for Abraham to believe? He was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to perform. So what does it mean for us to believe? To be fully persuaded in what God says. It's not just to believe in something abstract with no change in our lives. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So notice this if we believe believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So we're believing on God who raised up Jesus from the dead. So what happens there? God has resurrecting power. He raises up Jesus from the dead. And the concept of that is linked in Romans 6, verse 4, which says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ." was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what are we believing when we believe on Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead? We're believing that He will raise us up to walk in newness of life. Our life may have been dead in trespasses and sins, just as Abraham and Sarah were physically dead to have another child, we may be dead in trespasses and sins. And spiritually speaking, it's impossible to live a new life in and of ourselves. However, if we believe on God who raised up Jesus from the dead, he will raise us up, spiritually speaking, to walk in newness of life. And just as Abraham believed, when he believed, he was fully persuaded that what God promised he would perform, we are fully persuaded that God, because, of he, because he is all-powerful, will give us a completely new life. We will no longer live a life dead in trespasses and sins. We will live a life victorious in Christ. So that's what it means to say, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And that's sort of an interesting side point. Jesus was raised again for our justification. That means that the cross didn't complete our justification if he was raised again for our justification. So Jesus is raised again for our justification. He goes to to the, heaven, to the heavenly sanctuary, and if you understand sanctuary theology, the final justification will take place when the sins of God's people are blotted out, which is why Revelation 22 says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. That's at the end of the judgment. So that's what Jesus was raised up for. So then, on the basis of that, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore... Being justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified by faith? To have righteousness imputed to us. And those who have righteousness imputed to them are those who believe and are fully persuaded that God will raise us up to walk in newness of life. So chapter 5, verse 1, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a wonderful thing to have. If you've, going back to the first few chapters, you know Paul really hammers home the concept of the wrath of God, that those who sin against God and are living contrary to God's law, no matter if they're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter if you know God about God or you don't know about God, that he will pour out his wrath upon you in the judgment. And yet now Paul is saying, hey, if you're justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's good news. You go from being under wrath to having peace with God. And if you think about it, the only thing that really matters in this life is to be at peace with God. And obviously if we're at peace with God, we'll be at peace with one another. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but the bottom line is, in order to have peace with God, we must be justified by faith. In order to be justified by faith, we must believe, or which also means the synonym for be- believing from Romans 4 is being fully persuaded. We must be fully persuaded that God will raise us up to walk in newness of life. And just as Abraham... When he was fully persuaded, it wasn't just something that he believed could happen. It actually did happen. You see that? Abraham was fully persuaded that he would have a child, and he did, even though it was humanly impossible. And if we're fully persuaded that God will raise us up to walk in newness of life, it's not just something that we will believe can happen. It's something that will happen. So in order to be justified, we need to be raised up to walk in newness of life. And if we're not walking in newness of life, we're not justified. And so that's a a key theological point that some people say you can be covered with the righteousness of Christ and still sinning. And Romans doesn't teach that at all. It's amazing that people can somehow draw that from the book of Romans. So being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this is an interesting point too. When we have justification by faith and we have peace with God, we have access into the grace of God. And It's in this grace that we stand. Now think about this. What's Paul talking about here when he says we are standing in this grace? Well, again, if you look at the first three chapters of Romans, we will understand that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all worthy of God's wrath in the judgment. So the fact that we're justified by faith is... Simply because God has grace upon us. We don't deserve it. So that even though we believe and are fully persuaded that God can raise us up to walk in newness of life, that still doesn't give us any merit to be saved. It's only God's grace. Because God doesn't have to. I mean, God isn't... um, required to save anyone but it's only because of his love mercy and grace that any one of us are saved and notice this when we are justified and when we have access into this grace it says we stand now that's interesting when we are justified what paul is saying is we stand in this grace and it reminds me of the bible text in g24 this is now to him that's able to keep you from falling so when you're justified by faith you stand You're not falling. And um, the other interesting point is in Revelation 6, at the end of that chapter, it says, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who shall be able to stand? And that's interesting because Romans talks about the wrath of God. And there is the day coming when the wrath of the Lamb will be revealed. And then the question will be, who's going to be able to stand in the face of, of the wrath of the Lamb. Well, Romans 5 shows us that those who are justified by faith. Amen. And Romans, I mean Revelation 7 tells us that it's the 144,000. So, moving along here. So, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Continuing on, verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also... Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, verse 5, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And in one of our first classes, I came to this verse to make a point about the just living by faith, because. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And it continues on here in verse 3. So, when we become justified by faith and we are raised up to walk in newness of life as new creatures in Christ, um, you know, the the question is, so what is our life like after that? Is it just a smooth river that never has any trouble or any... Uh, Any point that tries our patience or anything like that? Obviously not. Obviously we go through tribulation, which works patience, which gives experience, which gives us hope. And what's the point of going through tribulation, which then develops patience, which then develops experience, and which then develops hope? If you remember, for those of you who've been coming all along, when, let's just say, let's use this as an illustration. Let's say a 10-year-old child repents of their sins, gives their life to Jesus Christ, and Christ accepts them that moment, and they are justified by faith. And God gives them the power and the grace and the faith to live a new life. They're now obedient to their parents where they were once disobedient. Um, and yet they still have so much more to learn about the Christian experience. Or you can say, is it the same same illustration, say it's a 55-year-old person who never heard about God their entire life and then they hear the the good news of the three angels' messages and the Seventh-day Adventist truths and all of those things and they accept Christ and and all of that and they're justified by faith. Those people, whether they're the 10-year-old child or the 55-year-old spiritual child, so to speak, they are at a perfect point in their walk with God. They are living up to all the light that they have. And from that point forward, God is going to allow them to pass through experiences that will strengthen their faith. So they'll go through tribulations. And that tribulation gives them patience. That patience will give them experience. That experience will give them hope in God. And so every time they go through a round of, of trials, it brings them closer to God. And the, the obvious point to be made is this. When the time of trouble comes and the 144,000 pass through that experience, are those people justified or not? Obviously, they're justified. Are they, or what level of their spiritual experience are they at? Are they at a beginning place in their spiritual experience, or are they at the end, full maturity? They're obviously at the point of full maturity in their experience. So what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 is that we accept Christ by faith. We accept his creative power to change our lives, and he will do that. And guess how he does that? He allows us to pass through trials And those trials allow us to gain more faith in his creative power to change our lives. And those trials cleanse us from our defects in character. We continue to learn more about the defects in our character. And through that we gain more patience and more experience so that eventually God will have taken us from our beginning point of justification and allowed us to go through trials and tribulations which gives us patience and experience so that we'll be at a point where he can have a group of people that he can take through the time of trouble because they have patience and experience and they have hope in the glory of God. And the 144,000 are described as having the patience of the saints because they are justified by faith and they've allowed these experiences in life to prepare them for that last day experience. And actually, I got an email today from someone who's been listening to this Romans class. And so if you're listening, um, I'll mention this point. Someone asked the question, well, the 144,000 are going to be at a point through the time of trouble that they'll have a certain type of faith and experience maturity that allows them to pass through. And their point was, what about all the people who died in faith who haven't reached the point that the 144,000 are during the time of trouble? And my quick answer to that is if you go to Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40, and this is a familiar verse, but Hebrews 11 verses 39 and 40 says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And if you study carefully the concept of the us, and in verse 40, the they are those who died in faith, which would include those in Hebrews 11, and the us are those, in Hebrews 12, 1, 3, 4, who run the race with patience that Jesus ran. And that's 144,000 Here are the patience of the saints. So what's the point? These all, in Hebrews 11, died in faith. But they without us should not be made perfect. There's going to be a group of people who go through an experience that, as we've talked about earlier in this study, vindicate God's character, at the end of time. And it's true that the people in Hebrews 11 or anyone else who died in faith, let's say Abraham, who's in Hebrews 11, Abraham didn't, isn't going through the time of trouble. But what the 144,000 do is they show that all those who died in faith, if they were given the same opportunity as the 144,000, they would have had the same experience. They would have exercised the same faith if given the opportunity. But obviously God couldn't give everyone the opportunity to live in the last days because people have been born down through time. So the 144,000 are a special group who are a demonstration of what all those who died in faith would have been if they had lived through that time. So again, Romans 5, verses 3-5 through shows that tribulation develops our character, and it gives us the character that we need to be ready to see Jesus come. And um, continuing on in verse 6, Paul continues this thought, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now Paul is showing us, look, um, you know, we really don't deserve this justification that we have. We really don't deserve this grace that we have. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I mean, he didn't come and die for a, a bunch of good people. He died. Um, he died for everyone, and he, he he even died for people who won't accept him. I mean, Hebrews two says that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So it wasn't that shows us that God's not willing for any to perish. So, how loving is God? Verse eight says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what are human beings like? Hey, uh, humans wouldn't even die for a good man, let alone a bad person. And look at Christ. He died for us while we were still sinners. So that shows us how loving God is. And then verse 9 much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So what's Paul saying here in verse 9? We've been justified by his blood. And the good news about that is if we've been justified by His blood, we will be saved from wrath through Him. And there's the concept again of the wrath of God. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see that those who are sinning will receive the wrath of God. But those who are justified by His blood will be saved from wrath through Him. In verse 10, "...for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son..." Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's interesting. We're justified by his blood. We're saved by his life. So that shows us that, yes, we're saved by the blood of Christ because you won't be saved if you're not justified. But not only are we saved by his blood, we're also saved by his life. And why so? Because it's his life that gives us the example and gives us the power to continue to live a justified life. We wouldn't even—it wouldn't even be possible for us to be justified if he hadn't died and shed his blood. But in order to live a justified life, we um, need the power of his life. And the verse eleven, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. <clears throat> so, the good news of the gospel is. Through the blood of Christ, we have received the atonement. Or the marginal reading is reconciliation. And of course, if you study the concept of the atonement in the sanctuary service, it was made on the day of atonement, at the end of the, around the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish year. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we clearly believe that the final atonement will be made in the cleansing of the sanctuary at the end of the judgment. Verse twelve. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting in Romans 5. The first 11 verses, Paul sort of wraps up this concept of being justified by faith. Chapter 1, he gives an introduction, and then he shows, hey, the... the, Gentiles of the world who don't know God or deny the existence of God, they're going to face the wrath of God. Chapter 2, he shows that the Jews who know about God but break the law of God anyway, and that's us today, Seventh-day Adventists, they're going to receive the wrath of God. Chapter 3, he shows us that the flesh, the human flesh, naturally tends to wander from God, and because of that, we have all sinned. Therefore, we are all facing the judgment of God And then he starts to give us the concept of the righteousness by faith at the end of chapter 3. And then Romans 4, he gives us an example of someone who lived a righteous life by faith. And he kind of ties that all together here in chapter 5, first 11 verses. And then the rest of the chapter here, he's going to show, he's going to say, well, you know, okay, you've read so far that those who are sinning against God are going to receive the wrath of God. But hey, God's God sent His Son to die for us. We can still be saved through His Son. We can receive His righteousness. And if you don't believe it, look at Abraham. He lived a righteous life by faith. Follow Him. And then, in chapter 5, he basically takes the argument that, well, you know... That's nice that Abraham lived a a righteous life by faith. But, um, you know, I'm a child of Adam. And because of that, I just have bad equipment. So I can't really, I can't do it. And the rest of chapter 5, what Paul is proving is, look. Adam may have had an effect on all of us. But because of what Christ has done, there's no excuse to let Adam's sin have an effect on you. And what he's saying is, yes, Adam had an effect on all of humanity because all of us are subject to death, and that's because of Adam's sin. But Christ, because of what he did, has the potential to have a greater effect on humanity than Adam's effect on humanity. So, and Ellen White says that Christ is the second Adam, And Christ as the second Adam, he died for all men. Hebrews 2 clearly shows that. And because of that, there is the potential for a greater effect on humanity through Christ than the effect Adam has had. So that's what Paul does. And so you get this comparison. Basically, what Paul does, and this actually starts in verse 15, but what you'll see is Paul will show us, okay, this is what Adam did to us, but this is what Christ does for us. This is what Adam did to us, this is what Christ does for us. And when when you understand it in that sense, then you're not going to get confused by um, the ideas that some people get confused by. And some people use Romans 5 to try to prove original sin and all sorts of things like that. And that's not what Romans 5 is teaching. So, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, one man, through one man's sin, sin enters into the world. And notice this, the, the wages of sin is death. So, because Adam sinned, we are subject to death. And notice this, it says, So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now notice it doesn't say, for that all were born. It says all have sinned. So what this is telling us is that, hey, Adam sinned. And because we have sinned, we die as well. Um, And in Ezekiel chapter 18, I'll turn there briefly. Ezekiel chapter 18. The Bible sets forth this concept. Um, Starting in verse 4 of Ezekiel 18, it says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then as you go on down... In verse 20, it says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, verse 20 of Ezekiel 18 says, Look, the son is not going to pay the penalty for the sin that his father committed. And so... What I would say is that if Ezekiel 18 is saying that I'm not responsible for the sin of my father, in a human sense, going back the farthest, Adam is my father. So I'm not guilty for the sin that Adam committed. That's what the Bible says. I'm guilty for the sin... That I choose to commit. And there's a, a theology out there that says we're automatically under condemnation for being born just because we have fallen sinful human nature. And that's the origin of that, is Augustine, and it's a Catholic teaching, and that's why they have infant baptism to take care of the original sin that babies are born with. So if your theology of righteousness by faith has as its foundation original sin, you better watch out because that's a Catholic doctrine. And it's interesting that Desmond Ford, the underlying foundation to his righteousness by faith theology is that we are born sinners under condemnation because we were born Right. So, David's statement, I was was shaped in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. All that's saying there, if you read that passage carefully, it doesn't say that I was born a sinner under condemnation. All it's saying is, is, when we were born, we were born in the effects of sin. We have a fallen nature. And... We, are, we have the human flesh. Romans 3 shows us what that human flesh leads us towards. And clearly Romans teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So inevitably human beings with a fallen human nature choose to sin. And that's what condemns us. Exactly. We are not condemned for Adam's sin. We are condemned for our own. I want to read you what E.J. Wagner wrote. He wrote a nice... Synopsis of the book of Romans. He says, this is page page 99 from chapter 5, and he's commenting on this statement, death passed upon all men. He says, note the justice here. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. And this is also a necessary consequence of the fact that sin contains death in it, and that death cannot come in any other way than by sin. So he he is basically saying um, similar to what we just said, and I can't find where he said it, but he goes on to say that we oh here Here it is, Um, page 100, he says, "Um, It is evident that Adam could not give his descendants any higher nature than he had himself. So Adam's sin made it inevitable that all his descendants should be born with sinful natures. Sentence of death, however, does not pass on them for that, but because they have sinned. So notice what Wagner says, and Wagner was one of our key teachers of righteousness by faith in 1888. Wagner says, The sentence of death... Is not passed upon us, down onto us, because we were born, but because we have sinned. There is one thing that we need to take note of: that this. Uh, the prophets who had come the children of Israel uh-huh. and delivered the gospel to them in their time. In Jesus' day, their descendants uh, took part in their father's sins. That's right. Jesus. That's right. We must be careful how we understand. Sure. That's true. Sure. Exactly. Right. And our own. That's right. So and for the purpose of the recording, um, I want to make sure this is heard. What um our brother was saying is that the Jews who crucified Christ participated in the sins of their fathers who had killed the prophets. And so because of that. They re, they were rejecting the prophets who prophesied of Christ to come. So they participated in the sins of their fathers who rejected those prophets, and they added to that the sin of rejecting Christ when he was here. So those are obviously some important um in other words uh, that might help there's actually an imputed sin as well as we know that there's a little but the way right yeah. describe it Not the weather is with white <clears throat> Okay, so that's verse 12, and we're going to wrap up here um, because it's about time for us to wrap up, and we'll finish the rest of chapter 5 next week, but we're kind of getting into it. So I'm just going to um, show a couple of things. We'll go to verse 13 and 14. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So Paul is saying, look, sin's not imputed where there's no law, but hey, people were still dying from Adam to Moses. And there's a couple of things going on here. So from Adam to Moses, God had not come down to Sinai and revealed the law but yet people were still dying, which means that there was a knowledge of God's law from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Because sin isn't imputed when there is no law, but yet people were still dying. So that means that people knew about that. The other thing that's... And then the law was given in the time of Moses, so then there was absolutely no excuse after that point. But then the other thing that's interesting is this: death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why does... Paul choose Moses as the figure for death reigning until that time. Exactly. Moses was resurrected. He was the first resurrected person. So from that point on, once Moses was resurrected, it showed that God had the power to resurrect those who died in faith. So death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression who is the figure to, that was to come. So notice this. It says those who didn't sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression still died, but that means they had still sinned. They just sinned in a different way. And then Adam is, is the figure of him that was to come. That's speaking of the second Adam. So that's... Pr- pr- I, we're kind of stopping right in the middle of this thought. We're going to get into it next week, but I'll just give you... a Uh, A preview, verses 15 through 21, will be an A and B motif, which Hebrew writers like to use, part A and part B, and part A will always be the effect that Adam has on us, part B, how Christ counters that effect. And it's very important to understand that, Because some people try to just focus on half of the verse to say, see, this proves that original sin is true. And they're not looking at the whole verse to say, here's Adam's effect and here's Christ's effect. And if you understand it that way, then you won't get tripped up by some of the arguments out there that try to prove original sin.